0: Welcome to the Blockchain Reaction Podcast. My name is Mike Fay. This show is about crypto and blockchain businesses. It is completely member-supported through the Blockchain Reaction Service on Seeking Alpha. That's where you'll find the full episodes and video archive, as well as a whole lot more. Before we get to the more interesting stuff, let's get the disclaimer out of the way. The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast are those of myself and my guest. None of this is investment advice or a solicitation for you to buy any financial instrument. I am not a licensed investment advisor. This content is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get started. Joining this episode of the Blockchain Reaction Podcast is Seamus Rocca. He is the CEO of Zappo Bank. Thanks so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a conversation I've been looking forward to for a bit, and I'm excited to get into it with you because of all the things that are happening, I think, within the banking industry and uh, obviously within crypto as well and, and how they relate. So this should be fun. Before we kind of get into all that stuff, can you just kind of give your, I guess, crypto origin story or, or how did you get into the space?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm a banker by trade. I, I've been in financial services for about 30 years. Um, about five and a half, six years ago, I decided to leave uh, Standard Chartered. That's where I used to work before in Treasury, um, and I wanted to join fintech. I uh, I stumbled uh, across Wences Casares, who you know was um, the CEO of Zappo at the time, and he wanted to you know take it from being a Bitcoin custodian wallet into being a bank a bank that wasn't just a normal bank, but a bank that could offer a dollar bank account to customers in, in emerging markets around the world. And, and that could also do it alongside Bitcoin in a way of you know enhancing adoption, creating a genuine use case uh, beyond just speculation. So, you know, given that he needed to, to to take Zappa from being a wallet to being a bank, you know, we I joined a CFO, um, and about two years ago, uh, when became the, the chairman, he's by, you know, by far the, the visionary out of the two, uh, and I'm the CEO and I'm much more sort of execution focused on, on implementing that vision.
0: That's good. You got to have guys like that. Um, what was kind of, because you came from more of a traditional financial background, what was kind of your aha moment with crypto specifically? Was it just getting into the network and playing around with it a little bit?
1: For me, it's interesting because, you know, one of the biggest challenges for any crypto company is, is finding uh, payment rails you know, working with banks, which is perverse, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the things about Bitcoin is the fact that it's sovereign and and governments can't control it and, and whatever else. But if you want to uh, have it as an asset class and to be able to buy it, you need to interact with the traditional financial system. So a lot of my early days at CFO and running treasury was, you know, working with financial institutions saying, hey, you know, we're a serious, you know, a uh, bunch of guys, serious board, investors. You know, we had Rivet Capital and Benchmark at the time, uh, and serious investors. Wences and I. You know, Wences was on the board of PayPal. I'd just come from being the acting treasurer at Standard Chartered. You know, we're we're not a bunch of you know 24 year olds in a in a basement with a laptop trying to create a new token. You know, we were, we really want uh, we're taking this thing seriously about. You know, creating a bank because in the crypto space, it, you know, you would almost get laughed out of the room five years ago if you said you wanted to be a bank. Of course. That, that managed Bitcoin, right? And and then as a result, I had to spend a lot of time with our compliance team. Uh, and a head of compliance at the time was uh, a chap called uh, Martin Kopax. And, you know, we were the first customer for Chain Analysis, we were the first customer for Elliptic. And, when Martin showed me the kind of things that you could do with these tools to track, you know, blockchain coins where they'd been, where it had touched, or whatever. Having worked in in banking and financial services for years, and and for example, you know, Standard Chartered is one of the largest dollar clearers in the world. The kind of things that you can do with blockchain tools on AML and compliance monitoring versus what you can do with traditional rails is a hundred x. But yet all the banks were scared about, oh, you know, oh, Bitcoin's for criminals, isn't it? And we're worried about AML. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, my compliance department walks all over yours any day till Tuesday, right? Um, so that was a bigger harm moment for me, which was, you know, coming into the industry, I myself had this bit of fear factor around, you know, the perception of Bitcoin five and a half years ago is not what it is today. Um, you know, so I, I've seen the transition and transformation in the industry where I would talk to financial institutions and they would be worried about Bitcoin. I don't think they're worried about AML and and those aspects of certainly not Bitcoin, maybe other coins, but certainly not not Bitcoin anymore. Um, I think maybe some of the concerns now are, are somewhat different in terms of. You know, what might be the impact on the wider macroeconomic implications of having dollar-stable coins that might destable the dollar, for example. Uh, so I think it's more, it's more sort of central bank concerns rather than AML concerns. Um, but I've seen that that transition. So for me, that was a big aha moment that was, you know, Bitcoin isn't just, you know, a speculative asset class. It's something that the fact that it's sovereign, the fact that it's finite—only 21 million can be minted—the fact, the hash rate, and how that's grown to make it, you know, almost inconceivable that it could be hacked. A lot of those concerns were there five years ago; they're not there today. But for me, the aha moment that this could actually happen was when I realized that the compliance monitoring technology that is available through blockchain will, once banks understood it, will make them think differently about what can uh, how this space can help innovate financial services
0: that's a really really interesting answer um, and I'll come back to it in a minute before we do that just talk about Zappo uh, what is it you know how is it different from something like a coinbase or a binance
1: Sure well we were born as a Bitcoin custodian um, we were in 2014 we started off as a Bitcoin wallet. Developed into a custodian, so this idea of having cold storage, and you know, we're best known for you know having the Swiss bunker and everything else, and the security of of your coins. Um, and the reason why we did that is because you know this idea of having your own keys, your own coins, keeping them, you know. In, in a safe in a pen drive somewhere is probably not the best advice. That's not what you would do with your own money, right? You don't keep your dollars in a safe at home. You keep them in a financial institution. Um, so we, you know, for, for Bitcoin to go mainstream, we we had to do with Bitcoin what banks do, which is, you know, it would be regulated, capitalized, so that you trust the institution. Um, but then the issue that we saw was that you know, getting hold of those Bitcoin in the first place was still hard, so we needed to build a bridge to the traditional financial space. So we went about getting an e-money license in a way that we can interact with payment companies and people could load funds and, and you know buy and sell Bitcoin. Uh, and then we developed in 2017, we, we had the first uh, crypto card was developed by Zappo in 2017 that eventually ended up getting shut down. And now, of course, there's loads of crypto cards out there, but we were the first. Um, so we were almost a little bit too early because people were still scared of what right. we were trying to achieve in, in those days. Um, but then the problem with being e-money is that if I say to most people, what's e-money? They don't know what e-money is. Um, but if I say to you, do you know what a bank is? Everybody knows what a bank is. Your mom knows what a bank is, right? Right. Um, if I said to my mom, I work for an e-money company, she wouldn't have a clue what that is. right? But I say I work <laughs> in a bank. She goes and tells all her friends, oh, my little shabby works in a bank. You know? <laughs> uh, so everybody knows what a bank is. So to, to, to build trust, which is so important in the, in the crypto space, Um, we embarked on that journey on on upgrading our licences and becoming a bank and and all the effort and work that entails in terms of risk controls, compliance, uh, and and, balance sheet management reporting. Um, And, you know, one of the benefits that we have is because we started off as a Bitcoin custodian. We started off with our first round of funding that we ever did was in 2014 and we raised 40 million and half of it we build the business, the vaults, and everything else. The other half, we bought twenty million dollars worth of Bitcoin in 2014. So we had you know thirty thousand odd coins on our balance sheet, uh, which makes us probably one of the most overcapitalized banks in the world. So, what we are at our core is a savings proposition that keeps your money safe. Okay? We keep your Bitcoin safe in the best vault security in the world. We keep your dollars safe because we're a bank. We're deposit guaranteed. We earn interest for you, so we pay you 4.1%. But we don't do it in 30-year bonds. We don't do it with anything crazy. We don't lend. We don't do fractional reserve banking. We don't do mortgages. All of your money, 100% of it, is invested in US treasuries and money markets, less than three months maturity. So we just want to make sure that you're comfortable and confident that We keep your dollar safe, your Bitcoin safe, and there's an easy way to interact between those two worlds. So that's really the core proposition of Zappa.
0: Very interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is the issues that are plaguing some of the regional banks in America right now, where they have Mm -hmm. a duration problem with the treasuries that are, you know, backing their deposits. Zappo doesn't have that. And, And you keep, I guess, customer funds segregated obviously so there's no ftx yeah. issue where you're lending Correct. out customer funds so i think the question that my listeners would ask then is how do you make money yeah well good question it's very simply the first one is that you know a lot of uh, businesses out there will will
1: offer a freemium service which is you know let's get gazillions of customers and eventually we'll work out how to make money you know we'd rather Charge an honest fee for honest service. So the account costs you $150. It's not free, because obviously to to you know we give you an account manager. You have a metal uh, debit card that pays you 1.1% cash back. Um, so that that would be a good example. If you think about you know you pay your $150. Well, because that helps me cover overheads, I don't need to charge you a ridiculous spread when you buy Bitcoin. I pretty much just give you the broker rate the wholesale price that the liquidity provider gives me there's a tiny spread on top right to cover price risk but i'm not making money on that um on the transaction same with a card you know i cover the overhead with your subscription when you make a transaction i get cash back from mastercard and visa i pass that benefit onto you because I've covered the overhead. So how do I make money? I make money on the balance sheet, which is how banks have always made money. The only issue is when when you think about net interest margin, most banks have a lending business as well, mortgages and whatever else. So that uses capital. So then with all their reserves, they're going to figure out, well, how can I make money? And that's why they go, you know, 30 year duration bonds or whatever else, because I don't do lending. That's not my proposition. I just go, look, if I earn 5% of the money markets and I pay you 4.1% and I make 90 basis points because I've already covered my overhead with your subscription, your money's safe. You're happier. I'm happy because I'm making money and it's win-win. Most banks don't do that. Most banks try to figure out a way of, right. You know, I hate to use a word, but they're trying to rape you off your money.
0: Right. That's the right so they- word.
1: Uh, you know, and they're trying to figure out ways of how can we charge you as many fees mm-hmm. as possible, and I'm going to pay you nothing for your deposits, and I'm going to charge you a charge you a fortune for your loans and your mortgages, and then on top of that, when I get all that slush of funds, if I go thirty year duration, I'll make loads of money, and then, oops, interest rate goes up, and you're screwed, right? So that's poor, that's really poor balance sheet management. Well, guess what I did for a living before I joined? I was the acting treasurer of one of the largest banks in the world. So you know. What's the safest way to not have that risk? Keep the asset side of your balance sheet as short-term as possible. The problem is that, you know, a year ago, that would have yielded a very low return. Mm -hmm. But my business model is if it's a small return, whatever it might be, I pass some of that benefit back to you. And now that it's gone up and I'm earning more, I pass more of it to you. But at least... If I've covered my overhead in your subscription, I'd rather be honest with you and say, look, it costs me $150 to be able to provide this service and cover my overheads. I'm just going to make you know, 50 basis points or whatever else I make on the, on the differential on interest, but your money is safe. You don't need to worry about you know, rates going up or down. You don't need to worry about the duration of my balance sheet. I've got more capital than I know what to do with because of my 30,000 Bitcoin. And you know that we've got the best custody vault security in the world so if you want security and being able to sleep at night knowing that your money is safe this is the place for you and the, the challenge that i see is if you look at the crypto community right we're caught between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand we're all most of us are believers in certainly bitcoin and that's where i kind of lean towards but then ftx happens so you lose trust and then you go, well, what do I do with my money? I'll put it in a bank. And then the bank implode. <laughs> and then you go, where yeah. do I go? Where do you go? <laughs> and we've created a solution where we're in the middle because we're not on exchange, right? So I don't have 500 currency pairs that that you trade with, right? I've got Bitcoin in the sense that if you invest in it in the medium to long term with a small allocation of your wealth, you know, the, the upside is 10x the potential downside. So... You know, don't remortgage your house and invest in Bitcoin, but a small allocation of your wealth in Bitcoin is probably a sensible thing to do. And if you have got some savings and you want to earn some interest on it and not have to worry about the strength of the balance sheet, you can do that as well. And the the benefit is that, you know, if you've got some of your money in an exchange... Right To get it to a bank and then send it to another bank is a nightmare. With one click, you can send me USDC, you can send me Bitcoin, you can send me Tether. Why? Because I'm very comfortable with blockchain and crypto. And I know how to do AML in the crypto space because that's one of our strengths, right? So from that perspective, we've created a bank for the people who are in the middle. Where you know, If you're a traditional finance person and you don't believe in crypto, we're not for you, right? If you are a hardcore Bitcoiner, you know, not your keys not your coins and you want to keep them under your bed we're not for you but if you're just you know mums and dads that want a safe place to keep some money watch your savings grow you've got a more of a medium to long-term view on finances and you don't want to be trading all day in an exchange the zappo is for you and i think that you know most of us don't know how to use metamask and go and put money into DeFi. you know i don't know how to do that my mum doesn't know how to do that <laughs> right, right? right you know i've heard of it i can talk about it but you know i'm not an engineer and, and so therefore you know if you don't make the interface between this space and normal people in the in the middle of the distribution curve of human beings that are not you know super technical or you Know massively anti risk if you're just somewhere in the middle, you wanting looking for a use case, someone to keep your money safe. Then, what we've done is we've created an interface to make that incredibly easy for you.
0: Yeah, and the you, the interface, the UI has been such a problem for the industry, uh, for such a long time that it's a, it's a really good point. Something that I think struck me at one point in that answer was it sounds to me like you are kind of what custodia bank was trying to be in America. Did you follow any of that drama at all with Kate and long?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, Well, the funny thing is, you know, I, I've followed the drama and, and how difficult it's been to get that, you know, the license and everything else. It's one of the reasons why we closed down our business in the U S you know, the U S from a, lawmaking perspective and in, term, in terms of financial services, you know, you've got different state laws, NTL. you've got a bit licensed in one state different to the other. It, 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 it was just very difficult to do business. Um, we got our banking license three years ago. Nobody knows about it. We didn't make a big hoo-ha about it. You know why? Because getting the licenses is only step one, right? One, you know, for me, there is no value in doing PR and media on, Hey, look at me. I got a license. Well, right. what are you going to do with that license? How's it going to work? Um, what is the use case that we needed to build it first? We needed to build the product, build the use case, test it, uh, figure out who the audience was, how we were going to, you, know, um, you know, find a, a voice in the space. Um, and uh, and I feel that we're there now. You know, we're, we're ready to launch. Uh, and I think our our value proposition, which is you're going to find this funny probably, but you know, we always felt that the value proposition would resonate a lot more in emerging markets because you know, having a dollar bank account in emerging markets is a big deal. You know, if you're in the US, you can go to any bank and you've got a dollar bank account. But if you're in Nigeria, Lebanon, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico. You know, people think in dollars, why? Because their local currencies are devaluing against the most powerful currency in the world. And the dollar, for in my view, for the foreseeable future, despite all the noise and, and debt ceilings and you name it, will continue to be the world's currency for the foreseeable future for many reasons. That's almost like a whole different podcast in its own right. Um so having this bank account really resonates in emerging markets in a way that we didn't feel it would resonate in the U.S. So, so why go through all the pain of getting all the licensing? And then it wouldn't be a product that we felt would resonate. Um, so, you know, we, we, we took it, we took the business offshore. Uh, we're based in Gibraltar, so we serve the world from Gibraltar, but not the U.S. For the reasons that i've outlined so we have our operating companies the bank and the vast are, are both here and we, we serve everybody except the u.s and then the banking crisis happened and i think everybody in the u.s would want the zappo the problem hey, is, let's get you know, that yeah but the problem is actually you know i'm not sure you know this is again probably wentz's being the visionary that he is you know the idea of of being in the u.s um was we kind of felt that it would end up being problematic. That it was just another business that mm-hmm. for us as a relatively small company trying to do what we're doing, which is hard enough as it is, we had to choose. We had yeah. to choose whether to be in the US or the rest of the world. And we said, you know what? The use case for the rest of the world is just more compelling. Let's go there. Yeah. Uh, now it's like... the. I feel there's a need for a Zappo in the U.S., but I think your regulation is going to allow it. So it, it, you're caught between a rock and a hard place.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting um, because I wanted to, to ask you, you know, wh- I think that people in the U.S., which is where I'm based, we don't understand the necessity of crypto at all because banking is so easy and I can mm-hmm. just go down the street and get cash. My branch is you know five blocks away, no big deal. But a lot, most people (laughs) don't have that. Um, So what is, in your mind, the growth market for Zappo? Is it Europe because you're in Gibraltar? Is it Africa because geographically you're very close to Africa? Is it just basically everybody who's not in the U.S.? Like, how do you do it? (laughs) Yeah, I think if you ask me
1: where do I think the biggest use case for Bitcoin is, it would be in Latin America, Africa and Asia, um, and predominantly in emerging markets, because in the US or Europe, you know, people complain about the volatility of Bitcoin. Well, yes, Bitcoin is highly volatile, there's no denying that, it's relatively in its infancy in terms of development, it's where the internet was in maybe 1995, so there's still a, a long way to go, so it is very volatile. But it's very volatile against your reference point, which is the dollar. Now, if you are in Argentina and you've got 100% inflation every day, right? or if you are in Lebanon and all of a sudden your government has basically blocked all accounts and you can't get your own money out of a bank account, you care a lot less about that price volatility because at least you're in control of your own money. Right. Um, and think about Venezuela, right? It, you know people in Venezuela would give the right arm for Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, why? Because your local currency is is a big issue, right? So I think the use case for Bitcoin as a store of value, despite its volatility, um, I think is, is, is real and genuine. Now, because it's so hard to, you know, buy uh, Bitcoin in some of these countries because maybe things aren't regulated, the UX is not easy to do. So, you know, that needs to improve for it to adopt. And if regulation doesn't allow you to touch crypto, that's going to be difficult. But you've got to ask yourself, why are some of these countries, you know, blocking crypto? But yeah, I think because when it when that happens, it's because the government is worried about economic instability and what it might create. But they have created the economic instability in the first place. I
0: couldn't agree so, more. Yeah.
1: Either through so pure poor regulation, poor oversight, or devaluing currencies. For many reasons, I did a blog post on that recently, which I'm more than happy to share with you. But you know, for all those reasons, that's why I think the dollar it will remain the the, the, the currency of choice because in these countries the problems are so much worse than a, than a dollar account still has value. If it's out of your country, it means that it avoids country risk. And what's the best use case for you to get access to dollars offshore, Bitcoin? Because if you get hands of Bitcoin, you can with a click of a button. It's like digital gold. Your money's out of the country. Yes, it might be volatile, but it's a hell of a lot better than the alternative. So I think the use case for for Bitcoin outside of developed countries like the US is is compelling in a way that unless you've lived it, you wouldn't understand it. Um, And people in the emerging markets live it every day. I think, so that's one sort of growth market for Zappa. we're very much an emerging market play. Now, having said that, because we are a, crypto bank and we're offshore. The type of person who's going to use Zappo is somebody who has already made that jump to the crypto space. If I have to convince you about Bitcoin, then you're probably not today's Zappo customer. You might be the customer of the future, but not today. But if you're really comfortable with stable coins, or you believe in Bitcoin, and you really made that first step into the crypto space, then for you to just send me some funds at the click of a button that you know are going to be bulletproof safe, for all the reasons that I've outlined, will be compelling. But if you have to figure out how you're going to convert your local currency into a stable coin, bubble, it, you know, it's a lot, lot harder. So so the other lens for us is, well, where, where are the world's Bitcoin? And there, are, there is a lot of it in emerging markets, but there is quite a lot of it in Europe. There's a lot of it in North Asia. Uh, there's a lot of it in other regions. So depending on what lens you use, you know, I feel that the use case is more compelling in emerging markets, but the adoption of crypto for a lot of reasons, you know, easier to access payment rails, easier to access exchanges, um, and, and as a result, most of the adoption has been in Europe, North Asia, and the US, uh, which might contradict a little bit you know, the hypothesis that I'm putting in front of you. But nevertheless, I think if you was to say to me, what is the direction of travel for the use case of uh, of Bitcoin? For me, I think that it's over time, the price will become more stable, and it will become much more of a store of value. Who needs that more? People whose local currency is devaluing hyperinflation nine times out of 10 created by government corruption, uh, poor management of, uh, of local balances and finances that lead to trade imbalances that lead to devaluation of the currency. And once you lead into that, once you get into that sort of almost vicious cycle of, devaluation so to, to make your exports, you know, more attractive and what have you, then you're onto a losing sliding battle. So most of the world's uh, local currencies in emerging markets have devalued at least 50% against the dollar in the last 20 years. And that's not going to change anytime soon. So I think the moment that, you know, people in emerging markets have easier access to Bitcoin and stable coins, that is, that's going to have a fundamental shift in the way that uh, finances around the world will, will work. I think that, uh, what, what governments and regulators need to figure out is it's going to be very difficult to stop that tide. It's much more around how, how can traditional banks, regulators, and institutions, you know, like us and, and, you know, the more regulated ones in the space, Coinbase and what have you, how can we work together, uh, to make sure that this industry flourishes but flourishes in a way that it's a win-win for all parties um we're not there today but i i think that's where uh, we'll be hopefully in the not too distant future and when we get there or we start seeing steps towards getting there that's when i think we'll see the the next true uh, bitcoin or crypto wave
0: how do you think the the BRICS nations play into this as well because we've seen china really slow down the purchasing of US treasuries. We've seen Russia have, you know, as a result of the war with Ukraine, uh, you know, the dollar has been weaponized against them. Is that kind of like a wake up call to, you know, even countries that are not necessarily emerging, um, but that are looking at America as potentially uh difficult to to -hmm. do business with? You know, do you do you think that maybe even goes beyond just emerging markets?
1: Well, I think look, there might certainly be
0: an element of that, right? The the
1: political climate in the U.S. in the last ten years has changed so much than what I remember it being when I grew up, you know, and the world looked to the U.S. as you know, the beacon of light and democracy, you know, and the yeah. last 10 years have been interesting in that regard. It yep. doesn't inspire an awful lot of confidence, you know, and some of the things that we see. Um, but having said that, look, what are the alternatives? You look at China and you think, you know, incredible GDP growth, um, you know, a powerhouse economy that even when we talk about it slowing down, it it's still like, 8% gdp which is like four times more than any other country in the world right um so but the issue is the four largest banks in the world are in china and all of the credit that they provide is dictated by how much the government decides that they want to extend so all liquidity is controlled by the government of china and I think, yeah, you know, taking the UN international, even though you're seeing some press that I might be thinking about it going digital, this or the other, um, I, I think to some degree that creates the risk of the government becoming more capitalist. There, I say it to a point that I'm not sure if the government would have the stomach to risk that. So even if they're going in that direction, I just can't see China becoming or the UN becoming the the world currency of choice in in any the, the near future. Um, if you look at Europe, Europe is gonna have to figure out how to rebuild Ukraine because it's on its doorstep. It can't afford for it to uh, struggle because the temptation for half the country to move towards Russia who would receive it with open arms would be too big. So as a result, Ukraine is gonna need to see a lot of investment and that will come with a hefty tag And I don't think the U.S. is going to have the appetite that it's had in the past to pay for the bill. Europe is going to have to pay for it itself. And more so because they are going to have to rely on on Russian oil. and That's not going to change. And Russian gas, that's not going to change anytime soon. So the euro is going to have to... It's got big problems uh, to deal with in terms of when that war is over. And in the meantime, funding it. Germany, for the first time ever, has decided to militarize. That's not a small deal, in my view. Um, but I do think that the euro is not nowhere near ready to be the currency of choice for the world anytime soon. And the pound, uh, it's like the yen, you know, it's a strong currency, great economy, but it's just not big enough and not set up for uh, international trade. If, if anything, the UK is more set up for uh, capital inflows and capital investment. So what does that leave? It just leaves a dollar. So despite All the uncertainty in the US, the banking crises, the political turmoils and sort of, you know, um, division that you can see from afar in the country. I don't even, I used to live in New York for five years. I haven't lived there for a while, but I follow the US closely because I I don't know, my heart's always been there uh, somewhat. But, you know, you can see the division in the country, right? And so that political uncertainty might be around for a while, but I don't think the dollar is going anywhere as the currency of choice for the world anytime soon, certainly not in the next 20 years. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of how I see the the, the dynamics of, of, of trade and the economy. The dollar will remain the currency of trade worldwide. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be a lot of noise, you know, with China investing heavily in Africa and, and Africa's resource rich, as we know, um and of course the war in ukraine there's always going to be geopolitical issues that nobody can foresee but i don't think the dollar's going anywhere as the currency of trade and what does that mean well that means that a lot of those local currencies are going to continue to suffer devaluation uh versus the dollar which means that you know any local currency in emerging markets that you're holding you're going to be struggling versus the dollars and in other countries where for example you know yes China has uh, reduced its reserves in dollars, but it's not in its interest to dump it anytime soon because it doesn't have an alternative to buy and hold as an asset class. And if it dumps it, it's going to take a massive capital hit. So they're almost in the same position that Silicon Valley Bank was in, that, you know, you've got all these assets, interest rates have gone up, but now you've got a capital hit and you can't sell it for liquidity purposes. Right. So I think China's kind of a little bit in that position with its own balance sheet. Uh, and it would be a brave uh you know government that decides to uh to hack away at its own balance sheet that way. Um so yeah, look that's at least that's how I see the the kind of geopolitical landscape uh in the next uh, couple of decades. But you know, what do I know? Your guess is as good as mine, right? No, right? oh, I mean
0: that was that was great insight. <clears throat> really, really uh thought provoking. Um you know, you mentioned kind of regulatory issues, um, and how like you know in the U.S. specifically, there's like the states have made it so that it's it can be very fractured getting, you know, allowance to do business uh, within the country. Uh, one of the big things that happened from a regulatory standpoint globally was uh, was Micah. Have do you have any thoughts on that, and and can you kind of explain what that does maybe for you?
1: Yeah, I think. Micah um, is going to be interesting. I, I I still remember Basel II coming out and then Basel III coming out um, and all the new regulation that was required by that. And it all seemed like obvious common sense. And then the US comes along and says, "Now nah, we're not going to follow Basel III. We're not going to have you know, these ratios or we're not going to do EVE on, on the balance sheet on straight risk. And look what's happened right um whether everybody will follow micah or not was yet to be seen whether every country is going to follow the travel rule or not is yet to be seen um what i know is this that you know we had a bit license in the u.s and The economics of the capital requirements that you needed for the license just didn't add up. They didn't make sense. And I think if you, as a bank, to be able to touch Bitcoin, the capital requirement is so big that it doesn't make economic sense. Then, yes, there's regulation, but you can't do business. So it's a little bit like, you know, um, financial institutions are in the business of taking risk. You know, you can never do banking with zero risk. Uh, what you need to do is be able to understand the risk and mitigate it as as best you can. So I think, look, having regulation like MICA coming out and trying to standardize regulation is a good thing. Uh, But I think there's still a long way to go. The jury's still out on who's going to follow it, how is it going to be implemented. Um, And look, I remember when I joined the crypto space, there was still, you know, the, the conversation raging at the time was whether... You know tokens and crypto were a security or not and six years later we're still having right. that debate yep. and i and i just wonder with Mike I, I don't honestly don't know i just wonder whether six years from now we'll still be talking about how it's going to be implemented um and who's going to implement it and the impact on the industry of it and i'm not even sure if it will ever actually be implemented so i i, I guess what i'm saying in a roundabout way is I'm an old dog and I've been around for a while and I've seen regulation come out and go quite a few times and, and these things take a long time to land. So
0: I'm not holding my breath. So basically don't get too excited. <laughs> uh,
1: I'm not getting too excited. About yeah. No.
0: Well, that was most of our conversation. It wasn't all of it. There's more behind the paywall over at Blockchain Reaction through Seeking Alpha. You can get a whole lot more than just the podcast archive by becoming a member. There's a live chat with Blockchain Reaction community a weekly newsletter with data and insights from the crypto market, a live portfolio, and two of my top token picks every single month. It's an awesome service, and I'd love to see you in the chat. The link to Blockchain Reaction is in the podcast description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.